The Tea Stop In podcast series is inspired by the memory of the last surviving founder of the Australian Cinematographer Society, my friend, the late John Leake ACS. When he and his wife Marion retired from the film industry, they bought a little motel outside Sydney and it became a tradition for cinematographers and other filmmakers to stop in and have relaxed conversations about the industry and the craft of cinematography. It earned the nickname of the Tea Stop Inn. This series sets out to recapture the spirit of those conversations, but this time we're inviting you to listen in. T-Stop In. Mark Toyer is one of the busiest and most successful TV commercials directors in the world, constantly travelling the globe shooting multi-million dollar ads. Over the last 20 years, he's also continued to do his own cinematography, initially on 35mm film and then with red cameras making the transition to digital. He's recently also leveraged that success to be able to do a feature film by his own rules. Mark, welcome to the T-Stop Inn. Oh, thank you very much. You're a very busy commercials director and cinematographer. Tell us about the work you do. I suppose the short stick of it is I mainly do uh, sort of high-end commercials. Um, I'm spoilt, rotten drunk. I get to pick and choose and uh, I'm between three and five jobs a day sent in, which is lovely for me. I mean, that's 20 years of hard work, I suppose, to be able to do that. Um, I travel the world way too much, trying to figure out a way to sort of uh, minimise that without sort of killing uh, clients off. But mm. it's, you know, that's the hard game. But, you know, I'm very happy in a very good place. So how did you get into this position? How did you get started and <coughs> progress to what many people would see as a very enviable position? Look, I, I look back. A lot of people have asked me that. I look back and I put it down to making sure... I had two things in place. Uh, One was obviously a solid showreel um, and making sure that showreel was of global quality, not just national quality, you know, uh, but made sure that it covered a lot of different areas, commercial areas, uh, and the big areas, the big spending areas, such as, you know, automotive, you know, people, banks, finance, you know, all those giant brands that don't mind uh, throwing money at their projects. Um, And also having that big, um, that international feel to it. So they go, well, you know, this guy shoots in Spain or Europe or America or wherever. He's he's all over the world. And he, you know, when they look at you real, you want them to go, this guy's done it all. You know, Mm. he's got huge dinosaurs running around chasing Coke bottles. One minute he's, you know, shooting cars in the back of India. He's down there. So... You know, when you have a great scope of work and a, and a good body work, it makes it a lot easier for then the producers that represent me to go and sell you mm. to their clients. So um, that makes things 10 times easy for them. So everyone's after a quick buck, okay? So from a producer's perspective, they want, you know, a director that can shoot because that saves on a DOP, mm. <coughs> sadly to say. So that's very much a selling point for you? It is for me. I'm not saying it's the right way or the wrong way. It's just the way, it's the way it, it works. And I know a lot of producers love that director DOP thing because it just makes for a shorter day, less communication on set, less mm. things are lost in, you know, in translation. Uh, it just makes their life easier. The other thing too is just that efficiency side too. You know, if, if you're a director that sort of goes over budget, and you're, you know, you're fairly callous with your uh, producers, dollars that you know he's trying to make a dollar and he's paying you a good amount of money to be there um, and the good thing is to respect that producer's position and make sure that you don't go over budget make sure you don't go over time make sure you do a great job and 
So, you know, I, I sort of tick a few boxes in those producers' eyes around the world, and hence why I've got um, a lot of return business over the last 20 years. So, obviously, 20 years of clientele, they just never go away. You know, I really respect where it comes from, um, and as well as the client. You try and tick every box for everyone. Not every job I'm going to do is going to be beautiful and amazing because, you know, there's lawyers, account executives, you know, there's a lot of politics involved in a lot of those jobs. So you go, sometimes you just got to bite the bullet. Even though you know the job's not great and it can be 10 times better, there's a lot of those politics. You've got to tick all their boxes. So a, a big part of it is sometimes not being precious about that stuff? Yeah. No, you can't be. I mean, it, it's great to be precious, but you don't want to bite your nose off just bite your ego, you know what I mean? It's sort of like, or someone else's nose off, sorry. It's, you know, end of the day, you've got to respect where the money's coming from. I'm just the hired help at the end of the day. I've got to deliver what they want, not what I want. You know, th there is times when the clients go, Mark, just go for it. And usually they end up being the best jobs on my showreel. Yeah. That's the best jobs for them. They love them. They can't wait to do another one. But it's, you know, it's hard for people to not micromanage. Their, their budget, you know, they, they, they've probably had a thousand conversations internally, you know, with their clients and their suits and everyone. So there's so many stakeholders in these in these big giant projects, they're two, three million dollar ads, right? So they are not going to let you just go crazy unless sometimes they do, you know, the brave, the brave do, the brave marketeers do. They just go, just, we know what you're good for, Mark, go for it, make us stars. And then all the pressure's put on me then. Yeah. But you know when they but in a good way. Yeah. Well, oh, yeah. Well, it is because then you get to, you know, do a great job. Mm. But you know when people are starting to dictate angles and shot angles and why things look and what they require and all these mandatories that research groups tell you to do, the ads never going to look good. It's directed by a committee. Yeah. Um, and then it's a pile of crap. But you know it doesn't matter that because it satisfies all the research data. As long as it's the particular pile of crap that they're asking yeah. for. See, they can't get fired because yeah. they ticked all the research boxes. They ticked yeah. everything, so you know they've protected themselves. But that's fine. You know, I've made lots of friends that way, and I don't really care. It's, I'm not going to fall on fall on a sword over it. I'm not going to fight over it. And that's why, if I want it to be better, I go and do a director's cut for myself. That's what mm. goes on my showreel. There's right. one go on my showreel because it's. it's like I said, it's not directed by me, it's directed by committee. Yeah. Um, so I get, do a director's cut if there's something worthy to, to put together. And um, and that's what goes on my reel. And look, a lot of times they'll ring me up going, oh man, we love your director's cut, it's awesome, <laughs> and can we use that? And I go, yeah, fine, take it away. Uh, but, and then, and you know, that's one side of, um, I think, success of, of being, you know, commercials director. And the other side is the, um, is you must now, you know, you can't live on your laurels and you can't live on past clients. So you've got to look for new clients all the time. So I put a lot of time, money and energy and I invest a lot of time in uh, international reach out to new producers uh, and new ad agencies or new creative teams and all that. And, you know, they see your work around the world anyway. So, you know, it, it, it becomes a bit of an avalanche, right? And mm -hmm. it's... it's, it's um, look, at the end of the day, you know, I've probably been too good at doing that and I get too much work, and sadly we say no, you know, five times a day. But mm. it's uh, but it's only because my schedule can only fit so many jobs in. But that's a good that's a good place. That's to a be great honest. problem yeah, to have. Yeah, great problem. Yeah, <laughs> rather that than starving on the side of the street. Yeah, 
How much does the diversity of your reel factor into which jobs you take and which ones you don't? Is that still an issue, maintaining the diversity of your reel? Yeah, look, what I try to do is I don't... I try to do two things for me personally, and I've just learned this over the years. Sometimes you can get stuck in one country for too long. So there was one point there I was, I was doing like two or three jobs a year in Indonesia, um, and all of a sudden everyone thought I was the Indonesian guy. <laughs> do you know? Then I got, I got sort of killed with that. Then I, was, I did one too many jobs in China one year. Next thing I was, oh, Mark only works in China. <laughs> I was like, cripe. So then I, you know, I got stuck in the Middle East doing some stuff. Next thing, oh, Mark only does... People love stuff. to pigeonhole creatives. Oh, sorry, you know, and I did one too many car commercials. The next thing, Mark was the car guy. <laughs> um, so... You know, that's a really dangerous thing to get into, mm. right? And it could be very tempting to just to grab the, all the... If those jobs are just coming to you and they're working, it'd be very tempting, I think, for a lot of directors, particularly newer directors, if you're getting this avalanche of work, to just grab it. Oh, you, you do. See, that, yeah. that's the balancing point, you mm. know, of, of, you know, when one country really loves you for a moment and they inundate you with work, you, you'll take all that work because it's coming from nowhere else. Yeah, yeah. So that, that's... Those are the curves and lumps that I've been through. Yeah. And um, and now, you know, because we have so much work coming now, it's like, you know, I go, I'll do a couple in the States, I'll do a couple in Europe, I'll do a couple in the Middle East, a couple in China, a couple there, here, there and everywhere, mm. uh, which is great for me because I don't want to get stuck in one country. Yeah. The other thing too, you get so many diverse different ideas, you know, from different types of, you know, groups of people in different parts of the world. Yeah. They've all got different ways of thinking and different... Um, Morals and different aspects of looking things, at looking at things, and they, so and you, and helps you get this, to keep you fresh. Yeah, where you get all this different body of work comes in, like you mm. know, you got some countries don't want talking ads, or you know, or, or dialogue, because they go, well, you know, we've got a country of a billion people, and a lot of them don't even know what we say anyway. We've got too many languages in this country, mm. um, so it's it's all got to be picture based. Do you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, yeah. So you go, okay, so you go very visual with that. Then you got. And then you've got another country, get, they just want to do comedy, you know, and, and I find comedy boring uh, on TV ads if you can't get the great, the be best talent for it. Yeah. So I tend to walk away from that because if I can't cast the right people, mm. I don't want to do the job because yep. you can't make models or meat puppets funny, you know, doesn't matter how, it, Steven Spielberg can't even do that. Yeah. So it's about, you still need great actors for that. So I, I make sure if I'm going to do a dialogue piece, TV commercial, which I don't do many, mm. it's because I lose control of the casting process. Usually they choose the pretty face. They don't go for the best talent, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and I might want to bring talent in from overseas, and they go, oh, no, 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 we've got to use a local. And I go, okay. But it doesn't matter. It's their job. You know, I love working with actors. I love dialogue. I love all that sort of stuff. But mm. if I can't have control of those, of having the right people... You can't to, guarantee that you're going to be able to... Do to deliver. Oh, you can sit there for two days trying to beat out something funny. Yeah. You know, one one person walks in, you can, and it's hilarious in three seconds. Yeah. And there's another person just can't do it. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter what I do, I can't make a person funny. <laughs> do you know <laughs> what I mean? That's their personality, that's yeah. their makeup. It's hard to get it to translate. Yeah. And you could do, you know, and that's where you have non funny people like Australian commercials, for instance, they have a lot of that slapstick. They'll put some guy in a green suit standing there pretending to be the skinny Superman saying some random crap yeah. and you're not laughing with them you're yeah. laughing at him you know yeah. what i mean so it's sort of like it's not that's not comedy that's just that you're just clutching at straws you know what i mean you're, yeah, just, yeah. you're just making rubbish for the sake of rubbish mm. and you you know do you really want to watch it and, <laughs> and all it does you just sit there shaking your head 
mainly. You're not. You're sort of laughing, but you're just laughing in, a, in not a good way. Yeah. But you know that there's so many ways of doing things. I suppose. Mm, mm. I, I mean, I like change. I like not doing the same ad twice. I don't like it when people ask me, oh, "I'd really like you to do what you did for so and so." I go, well, you know, we can do. We can't do that, but well, let's take it up another level. Let's go sideways a little bit, you know. Yeah. So let's not try to mimic someone else's style. That's mm. their look I've given them. Let's try and create you a new one, you know what I mean? Let's do something original that's yours, that you yeah. can own, that look. You're not copying the other brand, you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. But that's, that's just trying to get experimental. One thing that in my experience there's a huge variation with is the different ways that directors pitch for commercials, you know, the way you do a treatment, the way you do boards. What's your process like, and how has that evolved over time? It has evolved greatly, actually. I've, I've got a, a good portion of my clients now won't, they don't want a treatment, because they know that I'm going to deliver the, the brief. Mm. I ask them what they want. <laughs> you know, they tell me, they show yeah. me a reference commercial, maybe what they like or the style they like. Okay, mm. okay, good. Let's do that. Simple as that. Then you've got the new clients. They just don't know me. Yeah. So then they ask for the long-winded treatment. Um, so then I'll do the treatment. But, you know, my treatments are very pragmatic. They're very meat and potatoes, should I say, because I'm yeah. not a writer. I'm a director, yeah. filmmaker. Right? So if I, if I thought I was a writer, I'd be a writer, but I'm not. So I tend to talk about how I'm going to achieve and get the shot, why I'm going to get it, um, and, the, in the, and show some references and so forth. But really I just I try to do a little bit of role reversing and not fluff it up with poetry and big words and beautiful words and... You know, and just go off on big uh, creative tangents. I, I just really like to get to the facts. You know, so that, so there's no BS in it. I don't want to lose people in pages and pages of rubbish. It's um, just wasting everyone's time, including mine. So yes, I you know I do do very pragmatic treatments, and I say pragmatic because a, a client said that to me once. Yes, <laughs> usual treatments are very pragmatic. I said, well, hiding as well. And then they showed me some treatments from, you know, I won the job, but yeah, I said, yeah. well, just show me what the other guys did. So they showed me, and I'm like, oh, my goodness. I, you know, they, they were beautifully written. <laughs> oh, it just went off. It was wonderful. Yeah. But I didn't have a clue what they were going to do, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. And, and so was the client. They, they missed out on the job because they weren't, you know, functional, those treatments. Mm. They were just fluff. So you really want the, want the client to understand what you're offering them? Yeah. Yeah. And um, without without the poetry, right? So, mm. but then again, I've lost a job to a kid that was 19 years old, had one short film on his reel. His treatment was written not even by himself. You know, the <laughs> producer got some ghostwriter in to write it for him. It was an yeah. art piece. You know, the, yeah. it was a beautiful written <laughs> treatment, and the client chose the kid. Wow. Because he thought the treatment was beautiful. Now, the client didn't even look at the showreel or the body at work or anything. You know, he's yeah, just going, oh, I really like this guy's treatment. And next thing, this 19 <laughs> year old kid did it. And then I've got the creative director on the line on set going, This kid doesn't know, even know what to do. He's lost. The producer's wow. directing it. Okay. And, the, and and if we didn't have a really good DOP, it would've, we would have been screwed, you know. Mm. So it's the case of sometimes you just lose those jobs due to beautifully written treatments. Mm. So, yeah, is my, is my way the right way? No. <laughs> You know, maybe the beautiful poetry version is the right way. You know, at the end of the day, you've, you've got to try and seduce that client to, to win that job. And maybe I'm just not pretty enough with my treatments, you know what I mean? And and I have lost some beauties, you know. But, you know, that, but that's fair game, right? Yeah, and yet you've got more work than you can do, so. 
Yeah, but it's still, you know, I think I like the hunt and chase more, hunt, chase, and, <laughs> and kill and gather rather than the, the eating the food, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. And but you know, every director has to do it their way. Yeah. You know, whether whether it's right, wrong, or indifferent. I mean, I'm not saying my way is right. Like I said, I think everyone's got their own angle, and it's just what works for you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've I've been a bit of a technology nerd so I, I tend to do a lot of special effects myself and I edit myself mm. and I grade myself and, and I shoot myself I do a lot of things myself because I like to value add you know I, I just know this when my competitors first so they'll just run out of money mm. you know, they can't sit in a post house for weeks where I can just keep plotting along you know in my hotel room and and knock out some big stuff <laughs> and not even blink it's amazing how how far the technology has come with that in recent years, like that you can be doing stuff in a laptop, on a laptop in a hotel room that not that long ago required um, a major facility. Yeah, well, yeah, I bought myself a flame. I've been through that whole cycle. Um, you know, I've learnt literally most programs. Um, you know, I got really fluent with uh, Nuke and, you know, After Effects and, you know, I did the whole flame and smoke thing of, you know, motion. I've learnt all the editing suites, you know. I was a real avid guy and then I went to Final Cut 7, then I went back to avid, then I went to Premiere, then I went to this, you know, I've been bouncing through all of them. Yeah. And Resolve and Final Cut 10 and stuff like that. So, but to, you got to really... Learn, I learn all those programs intimately to go, what's going to help me get a great shot done quickly? Mm. And do you find that helps you on set? Oh, yeah, yeah. Learning how to do 3D and learning how to do 2D compositing and so forth, on set I can just fly. I don't sit there scratching my head. I don't have any doubt because I know I'm going to go back with the right material. Mm. And, yes, it's the same thing. I can see, look at that and go, I don't even need green screen. I'll just do a bit of roto. Or I'll send that to a company in India and that'll be back in 24 hours and it'll be perfect. And so that means I don't need to hire that giant green screen and I, can duplicate, here and I can duplicate those 50 people and turn them into a thousand pretty easily. Mm. And, and next thing I have this huge epic shot that really costs nothing mm. to do. But if it went, you know, if, if you're a conventional it, process, yeah, if you did that, it would, you know, that shot might have cost you a few thousand dollars or more, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? And, and a week later it turns up. That's my edge. With your cinematographer hat on, you've gone through quite an interesting journey, like starting off as a stills photographer. How did you get into shooting? Being a photographer for a while helped me. It taught me about framing and all that sort of stuff, obviously. Mm. But it didn't teach me about storytelling or anything. Oh, it actually, it did in a way. It taught me about how to tell a story in one frame. Mm. And, you know, because we had to, right? We had, we had one frame to tell a short story. Yeah. So I think I think I did actually. Now, come to think of it, um, it was probably a good training ground, right? A client of mine, Yamaha, which I was doing stills for, they uh, they asked me to do a video. I mean, sorry, they came in and showed me a TV ad. They spent a heap of money on it, and mm. it was yeah, it was rubbish, to be honest. <laughs> and but because I was a motorbike guy, I was racing motorbikes at the time. I, you know, I had my finger on the pulse with the whole motorbike thing, mm. and it looked like the guy that had or whoever directed or made this video looked like they hadn't ever ridden a motorbike in their life. You know, it was it didn't really translate too didn't well. Didn't resonate. And my client was quite upset about it. And um, anyway, I said, geez, I'd love to do a TV ad. I don't know why I said it. It was just flippant. <laughs> and he looked at me and he said, do you do TV ads? And I said, uh, uh, and I hesitated. And, and I just completely bullshitted. And I said, yes. <laughs> and I knew, I knew he knew I was just dabbling, right? Yeah. Um, and anyway, we yeah we, I mucked around. He said he had six thousand dollars, which is you know, is, which was rubbish amount of money for what he wanted. But I thought, oh, I'll do it. 
Mm. And, the, and the ad ended up costing me like 25 grand really to do it. But it didn't matter. I was sort of paying to learn. And, and I was really, it was really fun to learn. And, and, I, and I taught myself some very simple things. You know, the, the simple thing was 35 mil motion picture was way easier to shoot than my stills camera. <laughs> and it taught me about, you know, the post-production process, the editing process, you know, f film negatives, telecines. Mm. It was a real crash course. But I really couldn't believe how simple it was. And um, So we'd be talking about something like the RE3. Yeah, there. it was an RE3. Yeah, that crash course was so interesting, so much fun. Um, I entered that little ad into the local advertising awards and I won Best Director and Best Cinematographer wow. my, my first time. <laughs> my first time I ever entered anything like that. And... Yeah. Um, you know, the whole room turned and looked at me and they're going, I thought you were a photographer, right? Um, anyway, there was, you know, there was a few uh, bent noses there and, um, and you know, 12 months later, that's all I was doing. The the town mm. literally just loaded me up in work and I um, made lots of mistakes, but I was in it. Yeah, yeah. I was in the machine. Wow. Yeah, it was fun. And so for, for a period of time there, you were shooting 35 mil all the time, presumably? Yeah. No, it was yeah. great. It was, I, I did touch in 16 mil for a bit, but mm. I hated it. Yeah. To be honest, I just thought it was rubbish. <laughs> you know, it was it was compromise. It was just a grainy mess. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I wasn't really into it. So yeah, I became a thirty-five mil snob, and <laughs> and um, and that's what I did. Sort of floated between the different formats. Mm. You know, I'm all for three per four per films. You know, reality is it was um, it was such an easy process, mm. and I don't mind it now. So, you know, if I had a client or or someone wanted me to do a movie on film, I wouldn't even hesitate. Yeah, I go, yeah, why not? Yeah, you know, it's their money, right? I, <clears throat> they want to waste money on. You know, the whole film process, that's fine. I'm still quite happy to shoot film because mm. it's, it's, film is actually easier to shoot than digital. That's, that's the truth. Can you elaborate on that? Because I think a lot of people would be surprised to hear that. You know, oh, okay. See, with, I believe it's true. Yeah. <laughs> Look, the cameras are a thousand times easier. You know, you know digital isn't this. You can pick up cameras, press automatic and just mm. shoot hoping that the exposure meter on that camera, if you want to shoot in some sort of program mode or automatic mm. mode, hoping that's that little automatic mode might save your ass, right? It's but if we're talking about really shooting professionally, that's not. No, you, you tend to, yeah, you have to look at histograms and you need to manage your highlights and you need to manage colour and output. And You know, if you don't shoot a camera that is raw, like if just say if you're shooting like an Ari, for instance, mm. and you're shooting in a ProRes type workflow, Yep. You know, like the like a Canon workflow with an Artemis hanging off of it. Mm. So you you really need to work hard. You got to get your color temperature right. You got to do a lot of things right. You got to manage. You got to really manage to make sure that you're capturing everything correctly. Because you don't want to go into you know the, the post process with your color being out too far or your highlights mm. being blown out. Because you know to try and retrieve that and bring it back, it's a lot of work. Yeah. And highlights, for instance, you're never going to get those back. Mm. And if you underexpose, you're going to just get noise. So look it, with film. You know, once you trust your light meter and the way it works, the way you walk around set and gather light information, you know, and the film, the, you know, the film doesn't have as much latitude as digital, but it has another romantic feel to it that lets you get away with it. Mm. I mean, I don't know how many when times... When it goes wrong, it doesn't suddenly go... No, it, it rolls off beautifully and mm. charming, you know. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's you know, film, film is a, it's still a gorgeous, beautiful format. I mean, I can shoot my red cameras, for instance. I could still shoot those and grade that the way we used to grade film and get it match perfect. Mm. It, you know, it's like it's, it's easy to do that. It's so easy. It's not funny. It's, I mean, I, I don't know how many times I've actually got 35mm film that I've had scanned at 4K yeah. and dropped it into my red work and into my current stuff. Yeah. But I've just I've had to sort of degrade my red footage <laughs> to match the 35mm, the but I could, it's flawless. 
same so, bubbly grain. The, you know, there's yeah. so many great plugins now that mimic mm. that stuff. And the ILM guys, have been, well, the big post houses have been mimicking that grain structure and noise for years mm. with with plugins. So and, and the, you know the, the colorimetry of film. Yeah, all of that stuff. So it's completely doable. You know, so mm. the reality is, shooting film is a, is a waste of time. But I still think it's a, a great very enjoyable process. one. Yeah, I, th- I, st- I still I still don't discard film. I never mm. will. Mm. Yeah, and it's only because I understand it. So let's let's talk a bit about when when for you digital first came along, which I, I presume was the red. Yeah, yeah, that that gave us quite a fright actually. We a friend of mine at the time owned a post house called Cutting Edge, um, John Lee, and uh, he rang me up and he's and he said, "Oh look, I've bought this. De- I've got a deposit on this camera called a red camera." It's a 4K digital red camera. And, you know, me at the time, I was a full-blown 35mm boy. I mean, <laughs> I didn't care about anything other than 35mm. But we had a, 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 a quite a few young directors working for us at the time. And I thought this would be a great downstairs camera, I call it, you know, I mean, because mm. they were using video and all that sort of stuff. But this would be a really good video camera. Mm. And it didn't do tape. It was data. It was like, it'd be perfect, right? So... Mm. So we bought it. We bought the the $1,000 slot off John Lee. Right. Because he wasn't really interested in cameras at the time. Mm. And um, so we bought the slot off him. And before the camera turned up, I knew uh, Mike Seymour had mm. uh, had one. And uh, I flew him up with his camera and we just sat out front of the car park. We got all the team out. We got our lenses out and we just shot stuff across the street, you know, and I did, you know, really bright highlight tests and high contrast. I just wanted to see what it did. Mm. And straight away I saw the highlights drop off very quickly mm. and you know it was easy right you just pull it back a bit and now they won't blow it out so <laughs> it was an easy fix and yeah, i don't yeah. know why so many people were panicked about it panicked about it because it was such an easy solve you know if they yeah. were popped out you just pull it back a stop or two and it was gone they were fine you know yeah yeah anyway we took the little flash card upstairs and we stuck it in the, in the machine and and i noticed these little proxy files that were hanging off there was a red file and there's all these little tiny Quick times, mm. like proxy files that were sort of there, and I don't know what they were for. And I literally dragged them straight into the Final Cut Pro 7 timeline, and they they worked. <laughs> and I played, and it played. I went, oh my goodness! I mean, the image wasn't great. It was like it had like a slight pinky touch to it, mm. but you know, one touch of the of the slider, it was gone, right? It was. Yeah. And uh, and then I started getting really heavy with the grade, a bit like what we'd do a film. But I was just grading in Final Cut Pro, nothing mm. else. Yeah, Final Cut Pro 7. Because yep. it had the colour wheels in there. Yeah, yeah. And I was just mucking around, mucking around. I went, oh, this looks actually amazing. It's sharp. <laughs> it's clean. I've got the same depth of field. Mm. It lacked colour and it, and, it, and it was a little bit coarse. And I said, all right, that's that camera. That's characteristics. That's the characteristics of that camera. But mm. it still looked good. And with a, re- a decent colourist on that file, it looked even better. You know, that mm. was just me mucking around in Final Cut 7. So I looked at it and I went, man, this thing's... Way, way, way better than I thought. I couldn't actually get to sleep that night. I wasn't. I didn't care about cameras too much at the time, but this thing mm. really had me thinking because I was in a world where four minutes of film cost five hundred and seventy-two dollars. Yeah, do you know what I mean? Yep. Every time I pulled out a can of four hundred foot that film, trigger, it... it was five hundred seventy bucks for four minutes. Yep, and that became an expensive process. And I'm now I'm looking at something which I was recording, and I had an image instantly. Mm. And it looked fantastic, and it was 4K, <laughs> not 720, not uh, PAL. Yeah. So it was four. Oh, it was actually eight times the resolution of what I was shooting. And you've touched on one of the other 
revolutionary things about the Red One was that suddenly uh, you could use all the 35mm lenses. I mean, there was kind of the Sony F35, but apart from that, there was really nothing before that which... The Red Cam, yeah. Well, they had the Viper and... yeah. I mean, yeah, they had there was digital cameras out. I tried the oh, yeah. the RE D twenty one. I think it yeah. was, and oh, that was a terrible exercise. I mean, I was just workflow was just it was horrendous. nightmare. And then we tried that the Panavision one. I can't remember what that was called. Oh, uh, the uh, the Genesis. Genesis, yeah, we yeah. sort of hired that one yeah, day. Yeah. And man, I tell you, we could, that was turning off all the time. And the moment <laughs> the wind changed, <laughs> you know, the, there was something happened. It was just off, and there was two techs hanging off the end of it, off a big cable, and I just yeah. uh, ah, that's. Ridiculous, yeah. right? So yeah, so this thing was a revolution when it came out, and and but I didn't let the guys use it straight away because I didn't know how was the market gonna, mm. what, our, what were our clients gonna think about this thing? You know, I've, I saw a photographer years ago sell himself off his tools, and I watched his career dismantle mm. right before my very eyes. You know, wow. it was because he bought the first digital stills camera you know, years beforehand, it was pushing this thing so hard. And I realised that people didn't care mm. about the gear. They cared about the picture, the image. What was this guy? How They were buying his creative eye. They didn't give two shits about the camera. So I really didn't want to fall in that same trap as that individual. Mm. So when we started doing jobs with it, we just didn't tell them. <laughs> we, we just turned up and they turned up and they go, oh, gee, what's that? Oh, it's the new 4K digital camera thingamajig you know mm. um, and we put the video split in it and they looked at the picture and they went oh wow this is awesome because <laughs> it was they usually were looking at some flickery Grady, little flickery little dv clamshell <laughs> yeah, and it yeah. looked like crap but now they're looking at this amazing picture on set so w without us even selling it to them they it sold itself to them so wow. we still shot exactly what we wanted to shoot Mm. Uh, and we turned the creative as the king, not the camera. Fantastic. Yeah. And so that really saved us. So we literally, yeah, we started shooting that thing about four months later because I wanted to do some sort of R&D <laughs> tests on it in the sense I didn't mm. really want that to be in the field and break down. I needed to understand all the failings. So in the early days, you know, if you shook the hard drive on the back too fast, you'd lose pictures, you know. We, yeah. we sort of, we mounted the you know, the hard drive in a little rubber bag <laughs> type <laughs> thing. We, You know, you had to sort of look after it. It had its failings obviously mm. in those early days but and there's a there's a big thing in taking that time to get to know that new technology and get mm. familiar with it and what those failings are and how to get around them yeah especially post-production as well yeah yeah the whole workflow thing before diving into serious projects yeah well the big thing was a lot the post house which i was very tight with at the time which was cutting edge it was literally a couple of streets away and they didn't really want to touch it Really? No, it was it was really really boggled me to this day actually. I mean, I asked them to just change your pipeline to suit me a bit more. Mm. They felt it wasn't commercially viable for them and went really into it. So we started doing post and house, which was sad for them. I mean, mm. and they're still good friends now. They were good. It was a good company, and I mean, they still got my visual effects work at the time. But they did, but a lot of the jobs that didn't have VFX just disappeared for them, you know. Yeah. And the po and the obviously the Telecine died, and you know, lots <laughs> of things just moved on. But that was evolution, and so was then. Yeah. Was that when you started grading hands on? Look, grading takes years. Mm. Even to this day, I think I'm I'm a, I'm pretty good at it. I'm pretty solid at it. I mean, people love what we've done, but I don't think I'm by far the. A, a great grader. There's some fantastic colour graders out there. Mm. But I do like grading and I like doing it myself. And people always say to me, well, geez, your shots look incredible. So I must be doing something okay. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, I, you know, out of one to ten, I'll give myself a good solid seven. But, <laughs> but I, you know, I'm in a point too where I'm not stuck in a room and only paying for a colour for 
a few hours because it's all I can afford. I can sit yeah. there for days. So yeah. literally, I can get it to that. That's the thing I, I find so wonderful about hands-on grading is just being able to be in control of how much time you put in. If you know, if, if you want to do another couple of hours of grading, you go to bed a couple of hours later. Yeah, that's right. And it's the same too. You wake up the next morning and go, yeah, that I don't looks want to redo that. <laughs> it's probably a bit warm now, so you yeah. just jump on and do it again. Yep. But that's the tools. You know, the tools are there. The data's there. It's it's, it's easy now. The, it's um yeah. But that's the evolution of film and television. Yeah. You know, some people love that collaborative process. Mm. They like giving it away to their mate down the road, and I completely endorse that and respect that. Totally. Um, but this is just the way I roll. Yeah. And it comes from my early days as a kid. I, I could paint real life oils when I was a child. I could draw anything, paint anything. I was a gifted artist, child. It, seriously, just. Just something I, you found untaught. easy. Yeah, it was just I could just see it on the wall. I could trace it in my brain, and mm. there it was. Being being like that as a painter, I f- I literally finished my art piece right to the very end. I mm. didn't sketch it out and then give it to my yeah mate to colour in. You know what I mean? <laughs> so that's just my thinking at the moment. I just would I love finishing what I started. Mm. Yeah, I'm not no, really I can big on relate to that. Yeah, I'm not really big on just handing it away. Mm. And it's not because I, I'm trying to keep all the money for myself. That's a byproduct of learning all this stuff. Mm. But it's just a good feeling to go, you know, when I look at it and go, man, that's that's all me. You know what I mean? I've, I've shot it, edited it, you know, graded, finished, done all the effects. It's like a really good... There's real satisfaction in yeah, that. Yeah, there is satisfaction in it. That's the only reason I do it. So you've got this fantastic career doing TV commercials and you've then, in recent times, made the decision to make a feature film. Mm-hmm. What was the thought process there? Oh, look, I'm going to be really brutally honest. It was... Uh, it was purely a commercial venture really yeah, it wasn't a it wasn't a pipe dream it wasn't a i want to do a movie one day because i think a lot of people would hear that and be quite shocked because mm. you know independent feature films as a business venture don't have a great reputation in recent years what's different about the way that you've approached this if you blogged me in a few months time i'll tell you if it was <laughs> successful or not because we're going through a uh, sales process now but um look i put my commercial hat on full full blown through the whole thing, and I, and I turned myself into more of a producer than the director. The director hat went on when I went on set, but the but the producer side of me was all right. I've got so many friends around the world that have made movies. Honestly, none of them have made money because they've borrowed so much money. They've got to pay it back. Mm. They've got investment from countries and cities and states, and you know they've 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 really borrowed, begged and stole to be able to create that film. And I looked at their models, and most of them are the same. Um, and they end, they end up with so much money, and they and they've but they've got to shoot it in the particular country that they've been able to get the grant from, or or the whatever you know, or the investment, or the investment. And then they've got a lot of people all of a sudden telling them how to write the script and telling them how to make it, and they've got a lot of pressure on their shoulders, a lot of pressure. And a lot of it's financial pressure and time pressure and things like this. And and um, then they go and do their movie and they can't afford the big visual effects because they've just put all that money into a big star in the movie and that star has absorbed all the cool stuff mm. that they can do. So now they've got this big star in a basic drama. Or maybe they've got no star at all because they couldn't afford a star, a, you know, a big name <coughs> to help them sell it. And maybe they've done pre-sales but they don't see the money till the end. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? So there's all these little games and there's all these deferred payments with their friends, which is even more stress, right? Because you go, oh, you know, if the movie does well, we'll pay you, right? But mm-hmm. the movie doesn't do well. And then and that also becomes challenging in terms of sales agreements. And, yeah, and as yeah, well. Yeah, when it becomes you try, a barrier try, to selling the film. It is, but not just that. You, you lose friendships over it. You know, mm-hmm. it, it's to, take, to say you're going to do a movie is a big, big deal on your life. Mm. 
mentally, personally. So I didn't want to fall in that same trap. You know, I've done very well in the business. My wife and I have a property business that we, we've been investing in for years. We've we've cashed up. We've done, you know, well financially. And, and I was just looking at this model and I was looking all, on all the data and what, what's wanted in the world, what sells well, you know, what are, what are the key movies that people want? I mean, that the masses want. Mm. I'm not making a movie for the minority groups. I'm making it for the majority. And what, what did you see that the masses want? But I can't tell you where I got this information from, <laughs> but, um, but what it, it, I was given a, a literally a graph, a whole big lot of graphs, actually, and, mm. it, was, and it was literally telling, showing me, it was like, a, I call it the test tube movie, right? But it was telling me, you know, that action was like number one, action movies, you know, action oh. thrillers. Mm. Um, horror was in there a little bit. Um, Dramas, you know, conspiracies. Um, you know, how many people died in a movie? It was right. It was relatively detailed. You know, sci-fi, wow. all that sort of stuff. So I looked at all these boxes. I, I sort of set up a whiteboard and I and I drew all these things on there and and I literally ticked all the boxes. I'm going, all right, let's start <laughs> writing a script that fulfills. Yeah, it's my advertising coming out of me, right? Yeah, yeah. Find let's, out what let's the write a script wants. that fulfills all these boxes. Now it doesn't matter how good the script is, if you can't execute it properly, mm. that's that's it's all gonna fall on its ass. So it didn't matter how good my little master plan was, if it was if I was gonna do a crappy crap job and the actors were not very good and my post production and the effects weren't very good, then I was gonna fail, right? Yeah. So you ha- I had to look at all aspects of the movie. But the good the lucky thing was for me is I didn't need to beg borrow a steal. I just paid for the whole thing myself. Mm. And I wanted everyone to get paid and they told me what they wanted and if I thought it was worth it, you know, if their services were worth it, I'd paid them. Mm. And I didn't go in there haggling them. I just just kept it pretty simple. And we paid everyone straight up or straight away. There was no mucking around of payments, you know what I mean? If they gave me a good deal, great. We just paid them instantly. I didn't want there to be any monetary issues. And that, I imagine, would have generated a fair bit of goodwill through the process. Look, you know, they. I, I don't think people should sit on a shoot for three months and then get paid at the end mm. or dribbled a, a, some basic little pay, you know. You just pay them. You know, what do you, when you want to get paid? Every two weeks, every month? What do you, you tell us, you know, and we'll, uh, we'll just make it happen. But, that, you know, like I said, my wife and I are in a good position where we can just do that. And I didn't want to talk about money on set. I didn't want to talk about money at all. You know, I wanted to get all that shaky stuff done up front mm. and then let's go be creative and have a good time. So let's talk about that process of executing it, that creative and technical process of shooting and finishing the film. Mm. How did you approach that? How did you approach the shoot? Well, um, I've never been into big crews. I mean, like, movies can have two, 300 people on them. And this is a, a relatively large film visually and, and it probably deserved more crew than we had. But at the end of the day, I, I didn't want to just throw money out the window. So how could I create a very big look for the dollars that my wife would let me spend? You know, <laughs> that was the simple fact of it. But you also like to work very fast. Yeah, I'm very that. fast. I mean, I, I decided I wanted to shoot the film with five, four and five cameras because I think I wanted to respect the, the actor more. So you're, you're saying four or five cameras going at once? At once, yes. So my love of multi-cameras is not for me personally, but more for the actor because I want that actor to be able to be free. You know, um, I want their timing to be impeccable. You know, I want them to live and breathe that scene. I don't want to be able to stop it all. 20 minutes later, we've relit it, come around the back mm. and get them into position and try and get them in that same mood. You know what I mean? Like some actors can do it. Yeah. The majority of them can't, right? Mm. They're very good in bursts, 
but to, but continuity is so important. I didn't want them to have continuity thoughts or thinking about continuity during their acting process. So if this one girl is crying with a cigarette in her f- between her fingers, and then I cut to the next shot, she's got now she's got no tears because she hasn't been able to do it five times in a row, and her cigarette butt is you know <laughs> it's in a different position, or she hasn't even got a cigarette in her hand. It makes the edit ten times harder. It it, it makes it harder for them, right? So if you're getting all of the coverage at once, mm. they, I guess they, they have to be totally focused on that performance because that may be the whole thing. That may be one take. Yeah. That's right. And that one take will be perfect. So if we did two or three takes, I usually start out wide and we and we sort of, I call it a bit of a, a, a block take or we call it, uh, you know, almost like a rehearsal. Mm. I said, don't go for it. But if you want to, go for it. If you want to practice your performance, go for it. You know, but just let's shoot a wide. Mm. So five cameras pushed out wide. Some had long lenses on what, you know, just picking up things, expressions, hands, feet, eyes, whatever, and we'd, we'd let them go for it. We'd just see the mistakes from that big block because I might do a whole page in that one take, you know what I yeah. mean? Or we might just do half a page, but I'll just let it all unfold and see where they'd like to walk. And we shot it. And sometimes and I so go... So by pulling the cameras back, you're giving them space to actually... Yeah, walk around, feel, see where they wanted to sit yeah. down, see where they wanted to move their hands, throw, throw something. So you weren't kind of locking down that blocking beforehand before rolling. Oh, no, cameras. we did we did a rough block. Yep. But you know, as actors are, because I wanted them to be a little bit a little bit more thespian in a way. Mm. I wanted them to be a little bit. I wanted them to think for themselves. I didn't want my actors to be puppets. You know yeah. what I mean? And then we did that rehearsal, and I said, "Well, that's bloody fantastic." I said, "We're going to come in now." So then we went for our mediums and tights, right? Because mm. it's seldom you use the wides. Yeah. You know, you sort or, of, or for very long, if you do. For very long, you know. Yeah. Then we medium tights, and then we just we just worked harder on that. And yeah, usually the first second take, it's a beautiful thing. Mm. And I I literally walked around all the cameras. I just looked at their monitors. I played it back, put the headset on, just played so no, it. So no video village. No, I couldn't be bothered with that. Cameras are right there. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm and I'm the only one answering to myself. So I just walked each camera, had a look, played the scene. Yep, great, played that one. Great, played the next one. Great, played... And, eh, I probably won't even use that shot anyway. <laughs> that angle so, anyway. And, yeah. And so what, what sort of... What size crew have you got for each camera? Um, Two, yeah. Mm. So what I did with this particular job, I may not do it again, but it worked for this, is I put short throw lenses on them so the folks... So the guy shooting could pull his own focus. It's very hard when you've got a 360-degree or a 300-degree mm. lens, right? That People are turning them too much. So we literally put on stills glass on the thing so they could just flick between the performances themselves mm. and they got very very good at it like you know what I mean and it was and this and is not because you don't have bucket loads of good cinema glass I don't to, I do I have yeah. bucket loads of good cinema glass but I didn't but you know, it wasn't appropriate for the way you wanted to shoot no I, I wanted it to be almost born identity mm. but better shot mm. you know what I mean a, a, a well shot <laughs> born identity you know what I mean? and but I needed the focus pull was about to snap onto something quickly Mm. And you can't snap on something quickly unless you've got a really good focus puller hanging off the side of you, doing With it for you. But yeah, but I wanted the, the, the operators to, to do the dictating. I didn't want the focus puller to listen to me. Yeah, do you yeah. know what I mean? So it was just a process. So how were the cameras rigged? So you've got you've got the red camera, which is a fairly small camera, mm. or very small camera, really, um, working off the screens or viewfinders? Oh, both. Both. Yeah, we set every camera up exactly the same. So if I wanted to float between a camera and myself, I, I just knew I was going to turn up on a camera that was set up for me. Yeah. I, I, I was a bit spoiled because I didn't care about everyone else. <laughs> but but they, they were all very happy, you know. Yeah. But the ergonomics were there. We set it up so we could go quickly to shoulder rig mm. uh, or quickly on the tripods or quickly on anything So or just handheld using a handle. So we still you, made them large enough and heavy enough to, yep. to you know, to give us some bit good, of inertia. a bit of inertia as well. And we, um, everyone, I think everyone were quite comfortable. At first going into it, there was a couple, you know, some guys there that, 
had not shot like a drama like this before, but yeah. I think 48 hours in, they were loving it. Wow. So much so that they are doing it now. Wow. They've moved, they go, wow, this this slight, this smaller type camera configuration is the bomb. Like, they couldn't believe that we were shooting 10 pages a day, multiple locations, you know, big scenes, yeah. action and dialogue and <laughs> screaming and everything, you know, which they know because these guys have done movies before. They said they would barely do three or four of these pages a day. Mm. We were mm. knocking out 10 wow. with ease. Mm. We were in the pub at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, <laughs> and, you know, getting leg massages. Like, it was, it was a good smooth running machine and i didn't need to shoot 10 pages it just it just sometimes the ad just loaded me up because mm -hmm. we could do it so you've got you know the, the red camera fairly small lightweight you've got stills lenses what else did you have presumably no follow, follow focus if you were using stills lenses no yeah we just pulled no. off the barrel matte box yeah, there was filtration in there there was you know we did everything mm. that you need to do we so just, just we just took the, yeah we took the cinema lens out and we just put a stills lens in mm. and did i have any degradation and quality of image no i mean i've shown the movie to people and they go oh my god this looks stunning what what lenses did you use and you said <laughs> well i just used the you know a 500 <laughs> canon zoom lens or i don't know even what we had we I bought a, I think, because we're in the mud and the rain, I didn't want to really wreck my good lenses. Mm. So I bought, I think, three sets of those Rokinon yep. things, you know, those plastic mm. milk bottles, I call them. <laughs> but we did a test on them. I go, well, those are those, those are as sharp as my professional cinema lenses. I'm not going to say which ones they were matching, but it was they had their own unique flares and mm. and stuff. But, you know, end of the day, on, on a big 4K projector screen, I, I put them side by side and I said, man, that's so marginal, no one's going to tell. But we've all graded it up now and it looks stunning. Wow. So is there anything, having gone through that whole process, is there anything that stands out to you now that you, you didn't realise going in? No. So no, it, it, it really a, just unfolded? It, yeah, it was a very boring process. <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, I learned nothing. I was actually ex really excited because I thought I was going to learn something new, I was going to do something new, a motion picture film. Mm. But the reality is it was so easy. I didn't have clients breathing down my neck. You know, ask ask me to do silly things. You know what I mean? It was it was it think, was a beautiful process, and very simple. I think there's something also in in that that psychologically in the industry, there's still a big barrier between feature film and everything else. And 20 years ago, when it was photochemical finish, and you know you didn't have much control in post and all that sort of stuff, versus telecine, where you did have a lot of control over contrast and all that sort of thing, there was actually a big difference between doing stuff for cinema and doing stuff for TV, say. Mm -hmm. Whereas now, you're talking about the same technology, the same techniques and processes, and there's not that technical gulf that was there before. And yet I think psychologically there's still this perception in a lot of the industry that these are completely different art forms. And, and certainly what you've just described suggests that that's not necessarily the case. No. I, I've shot, I've kept my same thinking with film. I've literally just moved, slid in across in digital, but I don't do anything any differently. Mm. I don't let the button keep rolling. I still pretend I've got a film mag in there. Cost me yeah. five hundred bucks every four minutes. Which would pay off for you when you get in the edit suite. Yeah, I just let's, you don't need to roll and roll and roll and roll. That's just wasting time, money, and energy, right? Especially mm. for the editor. Yes. And you're going to get a worse job if the editor spends five days going through rubbish to get that little one percent of work. So just make just press a button when it looks good, right, or mm. <laughs> when it's working. <laughs> but you know the film process on set. You know we made sure it was still a militant type system. Yep. A bit um, of discipline. There has to be focus. a discipline on set, and that's where the film world kept that discipline. You know mm, what I mean? Very much. And and you know, that's the la the bit of old school that I've kept is discipline. I I, I need order on set. I mm. don't. I just don't, can't, I can't stand just the chaotic nature of these new digital type 
Yeah. But then I think a lot of it, it's just uh, kids that are untrained, you know, they just haven't been through a proper thing. They don't know how to save time, how to be efficient, how to have some order on set. And I think it's possible to teach the generation coming through to have that discipline and order Yeah, they just, just need just to the, spend some time in the seat. That's yeah, it. they just need to be taught that actually there's there's a lot of benefits to working this way. Yeah. Like, even though we cut lots of corners, obviously for financial reasons, we didn't cut that part, you know what I mean? Mm. Uh, we had a really cool cinematographer on set, um, Tony O'Glocklin, his name was. Oh, yeah. And Tony, he was my... I put him on first camera, and or second or whatever, and he could just float. Uh, but he, he was very good with drama, right? He understood the story. He, he knew who was going to talk next. He was great on focus. He'd pull his own focus between people. He was... Mm. You know, I wish I had three more of them, you know what I mean? Wow. So if I was going to do another movie, I'd just make sure I get these three or four guys that were just really understood drama. Mm. But that's about the only thing I learned. <laughs> Other than that, um, he was an old film boy like me and mm. he likes a militant set and, you know, he, he just he kept some order. And he, and, but the good thing was he taught a lot of the young guys about that and, and we left... Cambodia, because we shot a good portion in Cambodia, teaching all these young guys that we employed there, you know, was you know second ACs and stuff like that. Mm. Uh, they left our set with a wealth of knowledge. Mm. You know what I mean? Like they really understood how a film set should work, and you know how slate, slating should work, and how camera management should be kept, and how to clean gear every day, and protect equipment, and mm. how you should lay it on the ground, and yeah, all that sort of stuff. So. That, that was a really a really fun side of it, is leaving a little tiny bit of legacy of us of being there and teaching Cambodia, you know, these, these young guys' proper film way, you know. Mm. That was lovely. It was like Bowfinger, you know, the movie Bowfinger. It was yeah. like we had these young Cambodian kids with us and they didn't know why it was up or down, right? But by the end, you know, they were. They were they was swinging the slate, <laughs> slates around and they had kept cameras set up before we even turned up and... Fantastic. It was fantastic, yeah. That must be very satisfying. It was for them. It was, was for me. It was, yeah. You know, they, they loved it. They hugged us all the way to the aeroplane, you know. They, <laughs> we literally, they just had the best film course of their life, you know. Mm. So what was your post-production path like? Oh, it was unique, to say the least. <laughs> um, look, a very ambitious film, because originally I, I went into the movie and I was going to team up with the post house uh, to do the post. Mm. And, you know, we were getting quotes back from post houses, you know, between 5 and $2 million. And that was only for the minimum amount of shots that we had originally. Now, when I came back with the actual film, we were we ended up with like almost two and a half thousand visual effects shots. Wow! And my wife was not happy, <laughs> and she goes, "No, not going to spend that sort of money." <laughs> and uh, and I go, she goes, "You'll find a way." And she was right. So I sort of dug deep, and I thought, you know what? I'll just set up my own post house. Mm. And the same people that these guys probably would have employed, I'll employ, and I'll just pay them directly. And um, and so I started a bit of a post pipeline, and I said, well, I'm going to do it like this, this, and this, and this. And because that's one good part about learning post yourself is you, you could really formulate a decent plan that works, mm. right, for you. Yeah. So I started doing some 3D tests, I started doing some 2D tests and stuff, and I go, okay, no, you know, this is actually easier than I thought. So I'd, all I need to do is hire a bunch of people no worse than me, <laughs> right? <laughs> So I got a, a guy, Ray, Ray Teague, who jumped on board and I put him on as like a supervisor in a sense. But he was a hands-on, so he did compositing as well and lighting mm. and, you know, because he, he can't be just a mouthpiece. I needed him yeah. on the tools as well. And he was the last uh, gatekeeper before stuff got to me, mm. you know what I mean, as well. And then we had lighting guys sort of spread around the place and then we had a couple of few sort of lower level sort of compositors and 2D retouching guys in different countries. Uh, then we had the, you know, we had uh, animation people uh, in Vietnam and 
I can't remember where else. And but it really is people quite in Russia and possible now, quite practical, to be able to spread work out, um, post-production work out all around the world. Yeah, well, that's where Fr- Frame.io got involved. Right. And, um, yes, like Frame.io, literally, the way we managed the Frame.io system, the way we set up folders, the way we sent off only certain shots of certain people... Mm. The approval system within Frame.io, the markup system on Frame.io, uh, literally saved my ass. Wow. Yeah. That uh, it would have been a very long, tiresome bit of file handling otherwise. Mm. And now my whole movie technically in pieces is on Frame.io. Wow. So if, I don't even worry if, the, if I lost hard drives. It matter. I've got literally it's just sitting up there in a the cloud. So, wow. you know, if something happens and the house burns down, I just hit the download button and <laughs> all my pieces come down again. So, yeah, wow. Because um, also, I think if if you think about okay, well, yes, that's that's made that international process really efficient and practical. Mm. But if you were going through a, back to a conventional post house process where you needed all those people basically in the same building, mm-hmm. what would it take to get the number of people that you're talking about doing the kind of work that they were doing in one place at one time? Uh, well, looking at my credits, <laughs> my credits start scrolling. Like how many people were yeah, working I'm... on the VFX on your film? Um, I can't give the exact number, but it's probably around 100. Wow. I mean, what we did, we just made sure people that were not very good at their job, they got seen pretty quickly like that, and we cut them. Mm. We, you just can't afford to just keep going with them because, like, you know, the $500 per day type lighting guy, if it's taken them three days to light a shot that I can do in two hours... That means he, he becomes now yeah. the most expensive lighting guy in all mm. the planet, right? Mm. Uh, same as compositing, you know. I go, well, I, I know I can composite that shot in a day. A very complex shot, you know. I just know I can do it in a day. Mm. And if that person takes two days to do it, all of a sudden he becomes now the most expensive compositor in the planet. You know, he's like, he's now not $1,000 a day. He's now $2,000 a day, yeah. Yeah, effectively, yeah. because yeah. It's, it's taken him two days to do one day shot. That becomes very much a false economy. Yeah, it does. So he, they might have a big name. They might be awesome. They, You know, and... but. If they're slow, they're slow. Uh, and speed was it was the one thing I was pointing at. And the other thing, if I had to go back to them three times, they were out. Mm. You know, and they go, wow, you're hard. And I go, well, I'm not, I'm not really gentle. Because, <laughs> you know, some you guys, you know, when they're doing the big movies, they might sit on a shot for a hundred changes, you know what I mean? Mm. Yeah, I yeah, don't yeah. want to do that. Yeah. And if you can't nail this thing in three, three, three attempts, then some fundamental problem here, right? Mm. And uh, you're working on it, so it must be you. <laughs> so, uh, you know, they're all lovely, lovely people. But, uh, you know, a few of them come back. I sort of get got rid of them and they sort of got their head together and then they came back and we got them back in the mix again. But yeah. they, they knew that I wasn't mucking around. Mm. And they knew the quality because I gave them some some final shots. Like, okay, this is the quality we're after. It can't be any less than that, you know mm. what I mean? Once they understood that, we were away. So you've, now you've got the film finished. Um, I've seen some clips. They look fantastic. What sort of reactions are you getting? Look, very few people have seen the whole film. Awesome, <clears throat> you know, some... I've, I've done a little bit of research on it and stuff, but a lot of people say it's awesome. You know, I'm a bit of a pessimistic <laughs> or maybe a realist, right? I, I, I think people just say that because they know me, right? But it's great. I, I actually like complete strangers looking at my movie mm. and they come out of it watching it and they go, oh, my goodness, that's awesome. You know, when they say that, you know it's real. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but, you know, when your friends say it, I, I don't believe a word they're saying. <laughs> they're just being nice. So, um, you know, I, my lawyer saw it the other day and the whole thing. And he goes, wow, I was pleasantly surprised. He goes, that was like a, it was like a real movie, right? He, was, he said, that's like the real deal. It's like a proper studio movie. And that made me feel good, you know. It was just yeah. like, you know, he goes, he, he knows because he's, he's, this guy's been responsible for a lot of huge sales of huge mm. movies. And, you know, mo- movies like mine just don't fall out of the trees with a lot of, they need a lot of effort put behind them. So mm. he was quite taken aback, actually. 
which was which is good. So I want him behind it, and I want him to find the right people to get behind it, and it'll all be sold and done and wrapped up pretty soon. Well, good luck with it. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> my wife will be very happy to get, for me to get rid of it. It's been two years of my. Um, actually, it's been. I could have done a lot quicker, but it was just trying to do a day job in the meantime. Yeah. Yep. So uh, I'm going to say to everyone out there, try not to do a, a full-blown feature film and have a TV ad career at the same time. <laughs> you won't get to sleep. <laughs> well, Mark, thanks for making time. Thanks for stopping in. Yep, thank you very much. <laughs>